0: WFYI podcast brought to you by Bloomington, Indiana, an American college town offering food and drink, college sports, outdoor activities, live music, cool art, and good times daily. Everyone is welcome in Bloomington. More information at visitbloomington.com. It's time to hear what's good, what's bad, and what's ugly at the multiplexes and at the art house. Warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, or doghouse in that area. You'll also hear about new and old films on Blu-ray and on DVD. Plus, you'll hear all the latest Hollywood gossip. I don't care! Okay, maybe not the latter, but it is time for film sociology with WFYI's film guru. Kaiser Shizzy! No, that's Matthew Sosie. It's stupid
1: such cow. a fine line between stupid and, and clever, yes.
0: Let's see how thin the line is. Here's your host, Matthew Sosi. Hello there, film lovers. Welcome to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the Point and WFYI.org. If you have a question or a comment, you can email me at msocey, that's M-S-O-C-E-Y, at WFYI.org. I'm also on Facebook, also on Twitter, at Matthew Socey. The show is available as a podcast, and it's also available on iTunes. Well, full full disclosure, ladies and gentlemen, um, as I've mentioned before, I'm in a production of Fiddler on the Roof, which opened this weekend at Richmond Civic Theater. Performances are, well, it depends on when you're listening to this show, Uh, 4th, 5th, and 6th, and 11th, 12th, and 13th. 4th, 5th, 11th and 12th at 7:30 p.m. and then the matinees on the 6th and the 13th at 2 p.m. You can go to gorct.org for more information. And uh between that and uh the having a, you know, a crew of just me, um wasn't able to see anything new this week, so I want to mention uh opening in theaters this weekend, of course, The Dark Tower or Detroit if you're into those. Um, I'm intrigued by both, especially The Dark Tower, since it's a Stephen King novel made into a film, and it's apparently fairly short. And I've never read it, so I have nothing to compare it to. Sorry, Stephen King fans. But, uh, just to mention, over at the Tibbs Drive-In, you can see The Dark Tower and War for the Planet of the Apes on one screen. Dunkirk and Detroit. Oof. Uh, Atomic Blonde and Girls Trip. And then the Emoji Movie and Despicable Me. Three. That's over at the Tibbs Drive-In, over at the Skyline Drive-In, the Emoji Movie, and Baby Driver. Hoping the kids go to sleep early, I guess. Uh, mark your calendars. Over at the historic Artcraft Theater in Franklin, Indiana, on Friday the 11th and Saturday the 12th at 2 and 7:30 p.m., The Great Film. Twelve Angry Men with Henry Fonda, Lee J. Cobb, Harry Carey Sr., John Fiedler, bunch of great uh, character actors, Jack Warden's in it, um, R.G. Marsh, E.G. Marshall, sorry, and the film debut of the great Sidney Lumet as a filmmaker. There was uh, as a director. There was a cool piece in the Onion this week talking about. Um, Lamette's use of space, uh, especially in the single space uh, location, which is the jury room and 12 Angry Men. But anyway, that is happening over at the Artcraft Theater. Um, Over at IU Cinema, they are up and running again, uh, depending on when you're listening to this, of course. Saturday at 3 o'clock, Citizen Jane, Battle for the City, really good uh, documentary. Um, and then the National theater live at 6 p.m of Angels in America part one and then Saturday or I'm sorry Thursday the 10th, Friday the 11th and Saturday the 12th Thursday and Friday at 7 pm Saturday at 3 p.m the film Chuck based on the uh, the biopic about boxer Chuck Weppner with uh, Liev Schreiber and Naomi Watts that is happening there and then Angels in America part two is happening Saturday the 12th. Um. Anyway, uh, and Ocean Waves Thursday the seventeenth as a part of the International Art House series. I uh, want to raise the glass a little bit to a few uh, recent uh, folks in the film world. Uh, June Foray, best known as a voice artist, who died on July twenty sixth. You've heard her. You may not have seen her, but you've heard her. Rocky Natasha. Uh, Cindy Lou Who from the uh, animated uh, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, Granny from Warner Brothers, Witch Hazel from Warner Brothers, Grandma Fa from Mulan, Jokey Smurf, and a slew of others. You've, you've just got to go and check out the list of characters that she has played over the years. As well as actress Jean, More, Jean Moreau. Uh, Jean Moreau, pardon my French, literally. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the grand dams of the French cinema appearing in films like The Wages of Sin, um, Les Liaison Dangerous, yeah, Dangerous Liaisons from 1959. Uh, probably what he's, she's best known as is, is Catherine in the uh, Truffaut film *Jules and Jim. Uh, other films include The Trial, Diary of a Chambermaid, The Train, excellent film with Burt Lancaster, Viva Maria, Chimes at Midnight, which I watched recently with a group of guys, the... Uh, Orson Welles' Falstaff Show, Sailor, of G- Sailor from Gibraltar, The Bride War Black, Monty Wash, The Last Tycoon, the original La Femme Nikita, Until the End of the World, A Lover, and much, much more. And it's been interesting to hear as the coverage and see the coverage of the death of Sam Shepard. Um, some know him as a writer. Some know him as a filmmaker. Uh, some or some as an actor. Uh, of course, uh, films, uh, plays like *Buried Child* and *True West*, *Fool for Love*, among others. Um, he did the screenplays for *Zabriskie and *Paris, Texas*. Um, wrote *Far North* and *Silent Tongue*, the two films that he did direct. Um, and then uh, again, had the uh, had the thing of being uh, known in the theater world as a, as one of the most influential playwrights of the last uh, half century. And, of course, in films, was able to have uh, uh, quite the quite an eclectic career. A handsome, leading man-like looks in films like Days of Heaven, uh, Resurrection, Raggedy Man, Francis. Of course, got an Oscar nomination for The Right Stuff. Worked on Country with then-wife Jessica Lange. Uh, the films Fool for Love, Crimes of the Heart, Baby Boom. It's played Spud in Steel Magnolias. I know the men are, are written in the film. They're not in the play, but it's still pretty memorable work there. Uh, Voyager, Defenseless, Thunderheart, and then started playing older authoritative figures, father figures. The Pelican Brief, Safe Passage, Snow Falling on Cedars. Played the Ghost, the father, in the Ethan Hawke version of Hamlet. All the Pretty Horses, The Pledge, yeah, Swordfish, The Notebook, Don't Come Knocking, Black Hawk Down, uh, was the narrator in the 2006 remake of Charlotte's Web, The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward. Robin Forty, played Frank James, Um, August, Osage County, Cold in July, Midnight Special, Mud, Killing Them Softly, just a a great career, salute to all three of them. Well, ladies and gentlemen, with that in mind, uh, we are going to take a short break and we're going to dip into the archives. So stick around. You're listening to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD To The Point and WFYI.org. Welcome back to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the Point and WFYI.org. If you have a question or a comment, you can email me at msocey, that's M-S-O-C-E-Y, at WFYI.org. I'm also on Facebook, also on Twitter, at Matthew And the show is available as a podcast, and it's also available on iTunes. Well, because of theatrical commitments, uh, we're dipping into the archives. Uh, We're going to play a couple of of my favorite things, maybe a few of my favorite things, depending on how the rest of the show goes. Uh, This was one of the first interviews that I did with this program that added a little bit of legitimacy because, well, he's an Academy Award-winning actor, still working today, and really cool gentleman to talk to. Here is my interview with F. Murray Abraham.
1: Well, what's on your mind? Well,
0: uh, first off, I guess I should – how should I address you? Your majesty. Uh, My liege, I
1: was thinking, but (laughs) – It's – my name is um, uh, – I'm half Syrian, half Italian, and uh, it's hard to please both sides of the family. (laughs) So uh, my my father's name is Frederick, and uh, they called – my name is Frederick, but I decided to use an F because the Syrians call me Farid and the Italians call me Federico. (laughs) So, so with the F, I pleased everybody.
0: All right, so F. Murray.
1: That's fine. Murray is just dandy. Murray, okay. And now do I call you? Uh, Matthew. Okay, Matthew.
0: And so, so obviously you played a lot of Wasp, obviously, with your background.
1: I played a lot of Wasp, yeah. I don't think I ever played a Wasp in my life. How did you get hooked
0: up with the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra?
1: I th- I've been doing this for years, all over the world. This particular piece? <laughs> and um, I think that this particular piece, you know what we're doing, right? The Copeland piece?
0: Lincoln's portrait.
1: Yeah, it's just, um, it's very meaningful to me. And uh, uh, the first time I ever did it was here in town with the, with the uh, New York Philharmonic. And uh, I was carried away. I, I really was very moved by that, by those words. And I had done some studying. I had played a Lincoln once, believe it or not, speaking of wasps. A Continental? <clears throat> I, a Continental Lincoln. No, no, no. no. See, you <laughs> no, know that was a great looking car.
0: Yes, it was. That
1: was when, a wonderful car at one time.
0: Back when cars were a piece of art.
1: Well, yeah, you're talking to a car fiend. I, I agree with you. When you could, spot, I, I, we could spot cars by the sound of their mufflers. They were that indiv- individual. I don't know <laughs> if you know that. Uh, yeah,
0: I grew up in an automotive town up in Michigan. So yeah, I, I, I remember those days. Where were you,
1: around Flint? Fl-
0: yes, I grew up in Flint. Got out with all my fingers.
1: Yeah, well, my people were steel workers in Pittsburgh. Yes. We made the steel, that I don't know, you have your own steel mills in Indiana, (laughs) I know that.
0: Uh, Well, not really. Gary's a a wasteland nowadays.
1: Well, have you been to Flint lately?
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) I mean, it's really too bad, it's a depressing thing. Um, uh, A friend of mine who lives there, when I did a concert in uh, in Detroit, uh, it was one of these concerts, only this was an interesting concept. A concert, it was... um, trying to think um it was um you know stravinsky's story of a soldier yes rather his music for it right well vonnegut has written an adaptation he said that the original story has nothing to do with reality he said the music does the discordant the wonderful driving strange uh, and and absolutely brilliantly original music I, I worship stravinsky this is a tough piece of of um of literature and writing he hated war monica did mm-hmm. and uh it's extraordinary i don't know why it's not done more often instead of the original but i was doing it in michigan and a friend of mine took me out for a ride out by the lake to, to take a, to have a nice fish dinner and i saw all those beautiful mansions all for sale yeah now how often
0: do you get to do uh pieces like this with with symphonies well
1: it's whenever i am I, I get calls and if i'm not making a flick if I'm not doing a play, I, I jump at the chance because I, I don't know how to explain it. If you have a chance to be on the stage with an orchestra, you have to do it. You have to arrange it if you have any pull anywhere, just to be on the stage with them while they're working out.
0: Now, is this a piece where you? It's in between the songs, or they're playing under you as you're reading? It's
1: going to be, it's going to be, between and during. Ooh, it's just thrilling. That's got to be a rush. Oh, I can't begin to tell you and I've worked with some of the greatest in the world. And it's thrilling, I mean really thrilling. Uh, it's like a different kind of a thrill because there's no, it's not an intellectual activity. It's, it's, it's far beyond the, it's, it's really deeply, it, it's visceral, but at the same time it's, ah, it's transporting, it's transcending, great.
0: Well, it's, it's interesting because when you do a film, unless, unless the director p- pumps music onto the set during a shot, I mean, uh, it, that's that's one thing. But to be able to have, I mean, you, you the soundtrack is behind you.
1: Yeah, the only problem with it, I mean, the danger, not the problem, is that uh, if you miss your cue, you're in trouble because the orchestra doesn't try to vamp and catch up. <laughs> it's hard to do with 90 pieces, it's, you know. <laughs> it's not a jazz combo. <laughs> it's, it's great. It's <laughs> It's also a completion of sorts in terms of an actor because there are things that uh, an actor in the classical uh, works, for example, any uh, Shakespeare, any musical piece of work, uh, uh, Moliere, for example, or even some of the beautiful music that's in um, Tennessee Williams, you're never going to be able to achieve what music achieves you try to mm-hmm. uh, vocally and, and and also spiritually but you can't you can't accomplish what mozart does it's just a different thing but the idea that you can combine them it's a, it's a, a kind of a gift i must tell you it's like a little present and the whole thing is i'm sure because uh, I did that movie so many years ago, I'm a deus. 25. I mean, it's, can you imagine that that thing is still alive? People still love it.
0: Yes, I can. Actually, I was I was 14 when that film came out. I remember being the youngest one in the theater by about 30 years, and think not only did this film introduce me to and open my mind to classical music, but I went, "Wow, who is this guy?" You know, the guy from Animal House is great, but who is him? Who is he? And uh, that was, for, I know for a lot of people, that was the, the world introduction to
1: F. Murray Abraham. Yeah, it was a treat. It was a gift. The problem is, of course, um, it's not being able to do another one like it, you know?
0: No, Amadeus II,
1: <laughs> the final years. Well, my son said that there should be a, a sequel where uh, Amadeus is where Mozart's son grows up and wants revenge. He wants to call it a- Amadambo. Anyway.
0: Don't give Michael Bay any ideas. <laughs> now, when you, when you filmed that, did you do the, the young Salieri first or the old one first?
2: The old one. I did
1: all the old stuff first. We did it in three weeks.
0: Wow. How, how much time on the chair for makeup?
1: Four hours. Four and a half hours each morning.
0: Were you able to sleep?
1: Mm, well, I was pretty, I was pretty intense. <laughs> I don't know how to tell you. <laughs> I'm a pretty intense actor anyhow, but uh, I was completely dedicated to that, and uh, I lived alone uh, when I was in Prague to be away from the company. It was all completely focused. I think the biggest mistake I made, if you can call it a mistake, is expecting to, from that point, do that kind of work for the rest of my life in in film. That's kind of naive.
0: Well, what, what was the silliest script you got after winning the Oscar?
1: Oh, <laughs> gee, there were so many that I, I refused. I should have done them just for the money, if not anything else. But they were just uh, silly. They made me out to be a, a villain. I don't think that is a villain. Well, I think he's just a. I think he's a, hu- a real human being.
0: Well, Carl Molden said, "Bad guys don't wake up thinking they're bad guys. They got a job to do."
1: That Good old Carl Molden. I just saw One Eyed Jacks not long ago. He was oh, he's a so good actor. in that.
0: Yeah, I just watched Baby Doll. Not not a film to watch with your wife, but
1: that's that's <laughs> another good performance. Was that Kazan?
0: Yes. It's funny you mentioned intensity. My my daughter, she's seven, and she said you were intense in Muppets from Space. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> she's like, you're talking to him. I went, yes, that's part of daddy's job. Oh, you're kidding! No, that's
1: so flattering. <laughs> Isn't that a great age?
0: Yeah, she's um it's funny my wife is an actress and any role that my wife plays my daughter wants to play. So she refers to herself as baby Gertrude and baby Parthy and last year Lynn got to do Lear and Emma said I'm baby Goneril and we went no you're not. No <laughs> no no. That's wrong and on so many so <laughs> many Lydia. levels. Yeah, ba- oh don't give her any. I directed that, but she doesn't remember thank god. <laughs> You're an actor. Uh, I try. My, uh, my wife is equity. I'm, I'm independent. And if it's a choice Look. between my wife's guaranteed equity money and, uh, or my vanity projects, I let I let the missus work.
1: Works the work. So. I mean, the, I, you can see that from some of the films I've done. I mean, after a while you think, well, I'm not going to wait anymore for a good film. I've got to make the rent. Well, even, even After a while, you think, oh, God, do I have to do this? And you do. But you I do think it.
0: even films that are, maybe there's not high-profile roles, but when I, when I see you in something like Insurrection and Surviving the Game, I'm like, well, he's going to be fine. He knows what he's doing.
1: <laughs> well, I love the idea of people asking me, like, well, why, why are you doing those movies? Well, I, that's kind of a dumb question. You <laughs> do what you have to do. But if they asked me to do other films, I would do them. But it seems to me that my life is really revolves around the theater here in New York, and uh, I, I do films when I when I have a break as, from the theater,
0: as opposed to the other way around.
1: Yeah, but it's a it's a nice life. Mm-hmm. Just one of those. I, I love Shakespeare, and uh, it's, you can't live on Shakespeare not not in New York anyway. I don't think you can anywhere. I mean, I don't think they pay very well.
0: Then mm-hmm. yeah, with, with was it after Amadeus that you wound up doing a lot more classical theater? Oh,
1: yeah, I was doing it before, but afterwards it was—it was amazing how it kind of guarantees your your work life. It's—it's it, it, it's hard to believe. I mean, I'm a good actor, but there are a lot of good actors around. You know, mm-hmm. you know that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not selling myself short, but you know what I'm talking about. You got to have some luck in this business. Sure. And I, I've had some luck, but. Uh, Ever since I won the Academy Award, I've been working practically every day. It's just been wonderful stuff off Broadway, off off Broadway, experimental stuff with you know, Richard Foreman and with, um, Tom Horgan and um, gosh, I guess everybody in town. I really had a, a great time. You and I'm going to continue having a great
0: time. Well, it seems like it's been, from an artist standpoint, to be able to do stage and screen and voiceover and narration, so you're not you're not stuck in a rut. You're not stuck doing a soap or a sitcom for the best. years and years and years. Yeah, it's the best. And one of the things that's always been, was cool for me, especially after seeing Amadeus, is you were one of those, that guys. And when I saw your earlier work, I'm like, oh my, I was a caffeinated 15-year-old. So I'm like, oh, it's the Amadeus dude and. Scar- Scarface and Serpico and The Sunshine Boys. It was one of those I have to go back and this is before the internet. I'm like I have to go back and find out what else this guy has done to lead up to this.
1: Oh, you got to take a look at The Ritz.
0: Yes, I've I saw The Ritz at too young of an age. I should was I should time. revisit it again now that I'm more semi-mature.
1: Well, it's it's uh, it works better on the stage, I think, but it's not a bad picture. It's great.
0: Yes. And uh, I especially liked your work in Mighty Aphrodite.
1: Oh, thanks! That was fun. Yeah, I, I'm sorry you couldn't have seen any of my stage work though, because I.
0: Uh, well, you're still doing some stage work, right? I just need to get, get go east.
1: Yeah, uh, I've been doing Ethan Coen's plays. Those are pretty funny. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know anything about them.
0: Um, what what are some of the plays?
1: Well, he's written six plays, and I've been in uh, four of them. So you're one
0: of
2: the community and, players.
1: Uh, they're they're. they're Six one acts, short pieces, and uh, it seems like we've got a hookup, and it's great because they're funny and they're brief and they're. What did Chekhov call his one act plays vaudevilles? <laughs> That's kind of what these are.
0: Right. <laughs> um, now, did I see you? Ha- you you just completed a, a picture of Barbarossa.
1: Yeah, it should be coming out next month. This
0: isn't a remake of the Gary Busey Willie Nelson western, right? This is completely different. Gosh, I didn't know about that. 1982.
1: No, I don't know that picture. I know Gary. We worked together
0: Mhm.
1: in Surviving the Game. Yes. he's uh, We really had a good time, he and I. I mean, I've you've heard stories about him, and I...
0: Yeah, we've seen him on TV,
1: yeah. I didn't see any of that stuff. I mean, he was... We had a great time. We became quite close.
0: I mean, the guy doesn't get an Academy Award nomination for nothing. Well, oh, that was a
1: wonderful performance.
0: Yes. what What is this uh, Barbarossa about?
1: It's a historic character who actually tried to unify... Uh, Italy, but under his uh, under his command, Barbarossa came in from the north and uh, tried to take it over. And it's this heroic story of a stand that these farmers made against this uh, brilliant and great general, and uh, these Italian farmers won. It's a, it's a, historically in Italy, Italy. He's it was a great moment in their history.
0: And you shot it in Italy.
1: Yes, I do a lot of in, uh in Romania and oh. Italy. I do a lot of work with the Italians. I've been doing it for uh, ever since before Amadeus, actually. It's kind of my second home.
0: And you got the... Uh, well, this inter- picture
1: I'm doing now is part Italian. It's Italian and uh, Canadian-financed. This one is? Mm-hmm. Okay. The one I'm working on. And Barbarossa was strictly Italian. Oh, uh, I see. Well- and that was the fifth film I made with that uh, director, and... I'm going to make another one with him next year in Italy and Canada. Mm-hmm. that too is a, a co-production between Canada and Italy. Don't ask me the connection, but there it is
0: It's all right. I remember going my my family and I went to Stratford and there was a the Canadian Chinese restaurant <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: whatever it takes what what's the picture you're working on now?
1: Uh, this is uh Giancarlo Giannini and I our old friends ah he's uh he wrote this script for us. And uh, he's uh, starring in it and directing it as well. And we're shooting it just outside of Toronto. I'm in town for only about four days. Mm-hmm. I, I, I had a break and I came here to be with the family. But we're shooting up there. And then we'll, uh, when we finish up in Toronto, we'll go back to Rome and finish up there. I have should be done with the picture on uh, the end of October. What's the title? It's. Well, there's several titles. It feels a little, <laughs> little like Woody Allen, you what know, you... the X Project,
0: or <laughs> Untitled. are you?
1: It's called uh, Looking in Obituaries.
0: Yeah, it's going to be renamed in the states. <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's a good script. He did well. He wrote it too. Cool. Yeah, he's a good guy. He's an inventor too, by the way. Anyway, what? What? No, what did he invent? He is an electronic genius. Really? He, uh, he does. He does. Inventions for his own house, for his own sound system, and uh, it's a remarkable man. He really is. Aside from being a, a remarkable um, ladies' man, they just fall over their feet when they see him. <laughs> he had now. He's got. He's had a, a wonderful career. That uh, his work with Lena was just sensational. Mm-hmm. Cool. Rita Müller. Yes, I worked with her. Her on a picture that she wrote.
0: What was the picture?
1: It was called. Let's see. Enough about romance. Now let's have some sausages. I mean, that's what she writes. <laughs> but it was my co-star was uh, Sophia Loren. uh uh-huh. And I, she played my wife, lover, and we. I got to kiss her a lot of times.
0: Wow. You you wish Kubrick was directing that day.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> Take 130. I don't know
1: if I understand Kubrick's last. I was very disappointed, and I'm a real big fan.
0: Eyes wide shut. I I was with it until the third last warning.
1: I just thought it's because this is becoming predictable and dull. And he's never dull.
0: No. Um,
1: I mean, his, his early stuff is still great. The
0: killing is. Still love a great the killing. Picture. It's so funny when people. I show that to people, and they, I think they're used to the wide, huge, you know, almost bleak scope of something like like The Shining in 2001, but oh, The Killing is so good. Yeah. Great ice film. Now you got me thinking of Sterling Hayden, and I'm interviewing you.
1: <laughs> Sterling Hayden, <laughs> wow. <laughs> he continues to churn it out, doesn't he? Mm,
0: always timeless work.
1: It was funny, a few... Oh, we- have you seen... the uh, oh. My wife discovered it recently. The original upon which, speaking of Sterling Hayden, uh, Airplane was based. Oh, um, um. In the zone, or what was it? I thought
0: there were a couple. Zero hour. Zero hour. Yes. Have you seen it? Um, not in a long oh, time. Oh, and it's
1: it's it's so it, it suddenly it's so funny.
0: So the Zucker's really were taking notes watching that.
1: No, they were they were lifting lines. They, the names are the same too. Oh, really? At one point, Sterling Hayes... didn't Sterling Hayes say? It's uh, a fine time to quit smoking. That was his line originally, and he's very serious. I mean, of course, they're all very, serious, but it's great. I mean, you got to see it. I,
0: I'll have to. I'll look for it because it was. It was funny. Uh, that was nineteen eighty, and when the airplane oh, that came out. Oh, could have been that late. Really? No, no, no airplane. Yeah. Oh, airplane! Yeah. Yeah. yeah, airplane. But what I mean was, you had all these serious actors like Leslie Nielsen and Lloyd Bridges and Robert Stack, and and they were able to get a second, you know, second wind of their careers doing that stuff. Well,
1: they, and also they were willing to make fun of themselves. I mm-hmm. thought that was very bold. And also that the credit goes to the director for making them feel they can get away with it. I think that was mm-hmm. they, were, they were wonderful. Bridges was sensational. Yep. But uh, there was another line, the doctor on the plane. that was so legitimate. It was so funny. I you speak jive, no. You have to find a doctor, but a doctor who didn't eat fish. Oh, right. It's, a real, it's an honest to God anyway.
0: Hey, let's not hey, let's not forget about your tongue work in Loaded Weapon 1.
1: <laughs> that could have been better. Anyway, that's really
0: fun. <laughs> a few months ago, I actually found on DVD and bought and watched again uh, Name of the Rose. Ah oh, yeah. Very cool. scary in that, you are.
1: Six months shooting. Sean was terrific.
0: And that was your... First of two times working with Sean.
1: Yeah, he's a he's a good guy. At least he was with me, anyway. That's good. Yeah, we, we got along very well. I don't I usually have trouble with anyone, but you know you can't get along with everyone. Mm-mm. Some people are impossible, and we won't even go into who they are. Okay? I
0: would never ask that. That's not this type. This is not that type of program. Yeah. <laughs> Just one film fan to another. Oh. <laughs>
1: I, have to I just don't understand why we can't make better films. I really don't. I mean, we've got all these examples for the last, I don't know how many years now. There's no excuse for this crap. You know, there really isn't. There's just no respect for the word, I think, and that's what the problem is. Enough of this uh, slice-of-life action crap. Let's get some art back into it. You know, those those wonderful moments when you uh, you hear a theme or you see a even a few frames of a picture and you go I want to watch this again. I I can't mm-hmm. wait to see this movie again. Uh that's the kind of movie that we can we can still make. I mean the idea that you have to spend 200 million dollars for a picture and you still can't make anything but trash. It's it's absurd.
0: Do you get a lot of offers from say independent directors?
1: Well, I I get yeah, it's I get them. It's just that even that they're not very good. I'd love to work for Del Toro, for example. Ooh. He and I got along very well on Mimic. And mm-hmm. uh we made promises and I'm from the border of Mexico and we both speak Spanish and I just haven't heard from him. So I'm sure when something comes up he'll he'll call me. Because he's a sincere man, but I think he's he's terrific and he started out as a as an independent. What was that wonderful story from uh, Buñuel? When he was approached – do you remember that picture that uh, Woody Allen made where they're standing in line and he talks – they're having an argument. Annie Hall. And, and, and Marshall, Marshall McLuhan. Marshall McLuhan
0: is back behind the plant if life were only like this.
1: Yes. Well, he uh, <laughs> he originally wanted Bunuel to do that. Oh, really? And it was going to be a different conversation, but it was going to – and he offered – you know, he offers everyone the same money, take it or leave it. But for Bunuel, who said, I, I can't do it, I'm busy, I'm working. And he said, well, I'll give you such and such amount of money. And he went up to thirty thousand dollars, and which is outrageous for uh, for Woody Allen to offer. Mm-hmm. It was really a, a wealth of money for him to offer. And Buñuel still said, "I really can't do it." And then he reflected and said, uh, "That was more money than my last film cost me to make. Thirty thousand dollars." Well, he was shooting in Mexico at the time. But sure. the point is, it doesn't have to be an expensive film to be a good one. You need a script. You need some good actors. And if you've got a good, good script, you're going to get the actors. Mm-hmm. You get me just in a second. <laughs> but anyhow, so you you do work for free. I mean, my, my theater work is practically, I have to underwrite it, you know. Mm-hmm. Theater doesn't pay.
0: Oh, we know about underwriting here. Mm. <laughs> this interview, You know very
1: well what I'm talking about. This interview
0: good. is made possible by memberships like yours. Thank yes. you. <laughs>
1: love i got no complaints but i, I really think that uh, as i said before i've got a, a lot of friends in this business so that's uh, long long lived friends who are just brilliant actors with all these chops and they can't get arrested i have to keep reminding them and myself what luck means in our lives and i'm I really a I'm a very proud actor. I really love my profession, but I'm also full of humility. I'm constantly grateful for these breaks I've been getting. And I'm absolutely sincere when I tell you that.
0: Well, I, I, looking back at even, even the film work, there, there doesn't seem to be anything that is embarrassing. And I, I've seen people with lots of money and lots of acclaim, and they do something that's just, it's just downright silly and not in, not in a complimentary way. And that, that, I don't think it's ever happened with you.
1: Keep talking. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, you're very nice. Thank you so
0: much for this. Academy Award-winning actor F. Murray Abraham here on Film Sociology. That's right. And uh, earlier this summer, the socios got to go on vacation. We got to go to Toronto and Stratford, Ontario, Canada. And when I think Canada, I always think of one of my favorite people to interview. Um, A gentleman I got to talk to a a few times and see live uh, On stage here in Indianapolis because WFYI was one of the first programs, one of the first stations in the United States to carry the Vinyl Cafe. So here is my film chat with the late, great Stuart McLean, host of the Vinyl Cafe. Joining me on Film Sociology is the creator, the writer, the host, the man who is the Vinyl Cafe, Stuart McLean. He is going to be at the Hilbert Circle Theater Sunday afternoon at 2.30. How you doing, Stuart?
2: I'm very well. Thank you very much.
0: Good to have you back in town. This will be your second time in Indianapolis, and we heard you're going to be taping this time.
2: Yeah, we're, we're taping in Indianapolis and in Cleveland this, uh, on this tour, which is the first time we've ever toured uh, taped in the state. So it's, uh, it's a bit of a deal for us.
0: Well, we appreciate being a part of that deal. Why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, at least some of the music and maybe a, a sample of the stories that are going to be done on Sunday?
2: Um, we've got Luke Doucette uh, and uh, and his wife, uh, Melissa McClellan, touring with us. They're just back off the Sarah uh, McLaughlin uh, uh, North American tour. And before that, Melissa had been on the Little Affair. I think they've both been on Little Affair. They're both. Um, what can I say about them? She's an amazing singer. She's just one of the. She's one of the great young singers in the country right now, and, and Luke is a fabulous guitar player. He's, he's been playing with um, Sarah for uh, 20 years as her guitarist. So they're great. Both of them are terrific musicians, and uh, uh, I'm really enjoying uh, listening to them. Uh, stories. We've got we've got three stories. We've got two brand new Dave and Morley stories and an old favorite to boot. Uh, the new ones. Let me see one of them Dave visits a, an old friend in a hospital and uh, well, decides the guy needs a, the, the guy needs to uh, go for a walk and so he busts him out of uh, out of hospital and chaos ensues uh, and in the other one day uh, Morley in the other one Morley is clean. it's springtime and Morley's down in the basement cleaning out the uh, uh, just kind of giving the house a haircut trying to uh, uh, clean things up a bit and she finds an old doll in the basement that she doesn't remember and that uh, that sends them both off both Dave and Morley off on a on a circuitous path through their memories trying to figure out where this doll came from and who it might have belonged to
0: hey i i was curious do you do you get people yelling requ- story requests at your shows yeah
2: sometimes especially the turkey stories the one they like the most they uh, <laughs> that 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 uh if i give people a chance they'll they'll be asking for that one
0: and then you have a 4 hour show
2: uh we have about a yeah exactly <laughs>
0: Well, going back a little bit, I, I was curious. Uh, do you remember the name of the movie theater in your neighborhood growing up? Do you remember going to that? You remember going to?
2: Oh yeah, there was the Kent Theater and the, and the Avenue Theater. The Avenue Theater, which had a or rumored to have a private screening room where you could have birthday parties, but I was never, you know, where you. I guess they were. I guess it was a corral where they'd put kids in where they wouldn't, you know, uh, Break mess things. up with everybody else. Um, but I never got to it. But in Montreal, actually, film wasn't a uh, a, a big deal for kids because there was a horrible fire in, in, in Montreal in a theater in the 1920s, and, and where 75 kids in a matinee burnt, were, were killed, uh, were suffocated, mostly trying to get out. It was one of those awful events where the, uh, uh, the you know the, the doors opened in instead of out, and uh, an exit was barred. And in fact, that fire was key for making across North America for making it uh, imperative to have exit doors. Open outwards instead of inwards. I see. And in a complicated and political uh, development, the Roman Catholic Church, which didn't like the idea of popular film and which more or less controlled uh, Quebec, the province of Quebec, the French-speaking province of Quebec, used the disaster to uh, get what something that it had been trying to get for a long time, which was to keep kids out of, of theaters. So for Close to 40 years, from the 20s up until the 60s. If you were under 16, you couldn't get into a movie theater in in Montreal, where I grew up. Well, there was no Saturday matinees for kids. It was just, uh, they finally brought in, at some point in the early 60s, they decided it would be okay to have family films, and, and kids could attend a matinee if their parents came with them. And I think the very first movie I saw was... A Walt Disney nature film. It was the, the the content was very carefully uh, uh, looked at before kids were allowed in. It was Perry the Squirrel, and uh, which was uh, I have to say, although I was very excited to be going to my first movie in a theater, was a bit of a disappointment because it wasn't <laughs> Sinbad the Sailor Man or Davy Crockett or some of these other adventures I'd seen advertised in the in, in the movie pages. And uh, well. There you go. <laughs>
0: it it seems like it was even stricter than the uh, Motion Picture Association of America here in the states.
2: Oh, it was totally. I mean, you just couldn't go into a theater. That was it. You were just not allowed in. Uh,
0: now, was there a lot of like Sunday or Saturday afternoon television, like movies on TV?
2: Not that I remember, which might have been a good thing, you know, because television only really <laughs> arrived in Canada. <clears throat> the first, our first TV was for the uh, coronation when Queen Elizabeth was coronated. People sort of went out and bought television sets so they could see that. Uh, but really, people didn't have TVs until the late '50s. So it, 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 we we were we were told just to go out and play and <laughs> go and play.
0: Boy, and and longer attention spans.
2: Well, I've got a friend. You're right about that. I uh, I had a I have a friend who works in television news who was who on his desk has a uh, a document where he every year he he monitors and keeps track of the average length of clips in news uh, pieces. And I think when he started, the, the the clip being you know the interview section of the mm-hmm. of the piece where the reporter would throws to. Uh, You know, the politician who has something to say or whatever, um, or the grieving widow or whoever you got in the story. And he said in the 60s, they used to be 30 to 40 seconds long, and now they're under 10 seconds, these clips. So everything has to move so much faster today.
0: Now, uh, Did you guys have a lot of – were there a lot of drive-ins in Canada?
2: Now, that's funny you should ask that. I was in Austin, Texas last week. And I went to an urban drive in in the middle of downtown austin we uh, a, a, a drive in in a real seedy part of town um, <laughs> where room with room for uh, thirteen cars and you'd uh, but with all vintage uh, equipment vintage hookups and uh, we sat in our car and watched Beach blanket bingo oh my uh, and, and, and ate vintage candy in this. Industrial set, part of Austin. It was uh, it was fabulous. No, going to a drive-in was always my great desire. There were, there were because once again, you weren't allowed to go to those. But I I finally um, I finally had my dream come true in Austin last week. And
0: one of the things that's always been noted is it seems like the 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 U.S. film industry has always overshadowed a lot of going on uh, of what was happening up in Canada. When did that When did that begin?
2: Well, the Canadian film industry kind of began during World War II. A guy by the name of uh, David Grierson. Uh, I mean, there were films made before that, but a guy by the name of David Grierson was famously brought over from England to set up the National Film Board of Canada, which was formed
0: which, in 39.
2: And it was begun as a uh, kind of a propaganda arm really. It was there to put to produce uh films uh, to encourage um, patriotism during World War II. But it very quickly um, after the war morphed into this hotbed of creativity and became, because of Grierson, famous for its, uh, uh, well, for a documentary film is what it uh, um, first became known as. And then then for animation, uh, the NFB was a... uh, um, Uh, made a a lot of Oscar-winning animated shorts and a lot of great documentaries. And and, and, and Canada and Canadians have had a a long history of being very strong in both those things and have peopled a lot of American um, uh, documentary shows over the years, have uh, provided the talent for that. But we've never really developed in the way that America or even, say, Australia has a a strong... um, feature film industry, Uh, we've we've turned it of our own with a strong Canadian identity. We've ended up becoming a service industry. We're known as Hollywood North. uh, And a lot of um, American productions will come to Canada and uh, work with Canadian uh, studios, with Canadian, you know, on Canadian lots and Canadian, um, with Canadian directors, actors, whatever. But they are largely American driven films. Uh, for a while, they came up because the dollar was the uh, Canadian dollar was less, uh, lower than the American, so it was economic for people to come to Canada to shoot films. Um, and, and and the Canadian side, it was always it was it was thought of as a uh, way we could develop the industry, but the Canadian industry never developed. You know, we're not telling our own stories. Right. We're we're telling your stories more than ours.
0: Well, I, I remember reading a piece on how there were two films uh, that were an example of, of that, of not showing the Canadian identity, even though it was uh, a massive amount of Canadian work. Which one was Porky's, directed by Bob Cl- I think Bob Clark directed that, mm-hmm. and, uh, and Meatballs with, with Bill Murray. And I think they said the only, the only Canadian identity was, uh, was a Canadian's jersey on the wall.
2: Well, and that's the, the problem is we don't have distribution. It's very interesting. Um, the music business, we're a small country. I mean, we're a huge country, but we're small geographically, but our population is small. And the music business, the government uh, policy, public policy became they recognized that in order to build a Canadian music industry, they had to support it. And the way they dis- supported it is they, they it became law. There was legislation made that radio stations in Canada had to play a certain amount of Canadian content. Mm-hmm. And they grumbled about this at the beginning. Uh, at first it was 25. It, go, it, it ranges between 25 to 50% Canadian content music, uh, depending on the type of station and the type of music. And the definition of what Canadian music is is fairly broad. It has to have a certain component of uh, of, uh, either recorded in Canada, written in Canada, performed by Canadian musicians, sung by a Canadian singer. You don't have to hit all four, but you have to get a certain percentage of those four. Mm-hmm. And, and because this existed, and because Canadians therefore started hearing Canadian music, Canadian stars uh, started to emerge because musicians could afford to stay in the business. And if you've got enough people doing it and making their living doing it, finally those stars will emerge. And that's why people like Katie Lang and Joni Mitchell and Randy Backman and, and Leonard Cohen and uh, came out of the fog. They, wouldn't have existed unless the support had been there. That never happened with film.
0: It didn't happen at the multiplexes.
2: They, the, the movie theaters weren't forced to show the Canadian movies. So any kind of small Canadian movie that might have emerged, like you saw emerge out of Australia, didn't happen. And we became the service guys for the American, uh, for the for Hollywood. And therefore, we became Hollywood North rather than, Canada, and we were producing meatballs and as you said, instead of some small movie that might in some way tell the story of who we are uh, in, in, in not in an earnest way but in the in, you know in a fictional way the way movies can do that
0: I would say how big how big of an impact were the tax shelter films of the seventies and eighties
2: or was just well that was it- that was the see that was the the, the well the government realized they had to do something to support movies. Uh, they went at it that way instead of the distribution. And so if you invested in a movie, you got to deduct it from your uh, income tax. So everybody was making – you You could make these $10,000 investments in a movie, and, and in the first year you get to write off $7,000, and the second year you you got to write off another $7,000, and therefore you got your money back without the movie having to make money and what happened is nobody cared what movies they were making they just cared that they got these that movies were being made you could invest in and the the emphasis became on the went on the deal rather than on the film itself and so lots of movies were made while these tax shelters were going but they were movies that nobody wanted to see
0: well i i I've, i I've, I've actually wound up seeing a few of those as a kid and i know i think it was it was discovered in 1979 that more than half of the 66 canadian
2: produced films weren 't even released, but they made investors very happy because they got their tax credits well it's, it's very it 's a very interesting um, uh, to, to compare the different uh, attempts at, 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 at government uh, trying to uh, manipulate public policy in order to affect um, the the artistic uh, uh, world and and to try and support the artistic world and how it succeeded in the music industry, in creating this homegrown music industry, and how it's also succeeded in the film industry, because there is a vibrant film industry in Canada, uh, but it isn't telling our stories. It's it's servicing Hollywood as opposed to uh, telling the Canadian story. And, and when you listen to, I mean, when you listen to Joni Mitchell, when you listen to the band, when you listen to uh, Leonard Cohen, you, you know, you can tell they are... They're deeply involved with their Canadian roots, They're, uh, uh, and are reflecting the country in some way. But the films aren't.
0: I, I think of a couple directors, and, and you mentioned earlier. There's a number of actors and directors and producers who, uh, you know, originally are from Canada and then moved to the United States. And you know, everybody from Ivan Reitman to David Cronenberg. But two directors I think of. Uh, if you want to have a Canadian director, I think of adam mcgoyan and uh, and guy Madden. how are they are they looked upon uh, highly regarded highly in canada well they 're
2: regarded highly by critics right and they 're regarded highly by film festivals, but their films don 't uh, are, aren 't uh, in, in wide um, uh, distribution across the country uh, and, and they and i mean those guys are not making films that would necessarily um, Uh, Opened in three
0: thousand screens.
2: No, they're they're making more idiosyncratic and uh, many would say interesting films, but they're not uh, they're not um, making those. You see, that's what we've got. We've got and and on the other end of the spectrum, James Cameron, who who made Avatar and Titanic, the two Mm. largest grossing films in history. He's a Canadian, so but he's not making Canadian stories. So th- we have both ends of the spectrum covered. We've got the, the guys who've developed through the Hollywood studio end of things, and we've got the artistic small film being made, but we don't have the guys in the mid- middle of the men or the women in the middle of the road making, uh, or in the middle of the pack making small, popular movies that reflect our story.
0: So we're not going to have James Cameron doing a film version of the Trailer Park Boys
2: well he, he 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 might but it'll be it'll be a toss off it'll be something that he does at some point in his career to uh uh, uh because his conscience is nagging him right
0: are, are you familiar with a website called Connexploitation?
2: No, I ha- I'm not.
0: It's it's a guide to the B movies from Canada from uh, like the '50s through the '90s. Uh and no, uh, that
2: sounds like fun. Well,
0: it is because I was going through some of these, and and as a kid, I I knew I saw some of these films in theaters, saw them on video, saw them in you know at the on cable and you know only as i got older and more into this business i found out that it was a, a canadian made film you know films like the original black christmas which i know is a cult classic for horror fans uh, the changeling the brood obviously a lot of these are are horror films but uh but films like uh, space hunter adventures in the forbidden zone i remember seeing that as a kid even uh in my hometown of flint michigan we got the Grey Fox, the Richard Farnsworth oh, yeah. Western, which I thought was just fantastic. And now
2: that was that was, a, that was a great movie, and that was well seen across Canada. Mm-hmm. And that and though and that's the exception that proves the rule. That's one of the that's the sort of film that I'm talking about that we should be making more of.
0: And and a film like Black Robe, which t- w- did a better version of the Dances with Wolves story. So, d- Stuart, I'm I'm curious. Uh, I mean, how, do you get to see any movies when you're on the road, and how often do you get to see stuff at home when you're at home?
2: These days, uh, when, first off, do I get to see movies on the road? Never. Occasionally, we have a night off, but usually, usually if we have a day off between shows, it's a travel day and we're moving from one one place to the other, and we'll be on the bus for 10 hours. And by the time you come to the hotel, uh, if you get the, you know, if you've been traveling on the bus all day, the idea of going and sitting in a, a movie theater just doesn't uh, isn't what I feel like anyway. And you, you tend to just want to settle down in your room and read or. Uh, go for a walk uh, at home. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a writer these days is how I spend most of my time. And I've got, I I, I'm a, I seem to always be on a deadline, which is a writer's best friend. I'm not complaining <laughs> about being on a deadline. I think when people ask me about how, how what's my advice to being a better, or being a writer, I always say, find yourself a deadline because it, uh, uh, it's what will make you sit down in your chair and, and, and and get writing um and a deadline can be anything it can be a an assignment from somebody it can be a creative writing class it can be a a writing group uh, whatever it is it's just has to be something that forces you to, to to produce so i i i find that i'm um i'm uh spending a lot of my time producing i i did however for christmas make my uh sons a little book this this year where i uh um i i sent them a book with uh my favorite um uh movies of all time and uh uh with a little explanation as to uh what each movie was and and why it was important to me and, and so i have been thinking about the films of my life and uh, and realized in, during the exercise that that movies were had been more important to me than than i thought
0: can you give me a sample
2: um Gee, now I gotta your I thought oh, my goodness, I thought I could I open my mouth, I'm gonna have to uh <laughs> say something. Uh, say them well uh, I mean my favorite movie of all time was Lawrence of Arabia. I uh that was on the list of ten. There was a movie called The Flim Flam Man. With George C. Scott, yeah. You know it.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Con artist film.
2: Yeah, that's right. Well, I was a bit of a con artist myself as a young guy and, and it was I think that movie resonated with me, um, in a big way because uh, I'm so impressed that you know it because um uh, because I um went to see it without knowing what it was about and um that uh and it just had this great uh it was just it was spoke to me and it was uh, it was about a, a um a con artist who took a young lad under his wings and uh, taught him the game and I I desperately wanted to be that young boy I uh, Go, I'm sorry. Go ahead. go ahead. You go. No.
0: Well, I say I had a similar feeling, and it is this is another example of I saw the film not knowing it was a Canadian film, but enjoyed it nonetheless. Was the apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz? No, I haven't. Yeah, I haven't seen Richard that Dreyfuss. one. Yeah, and I know the author of that film had another one of his books was made into a movie last year, Barney's version.
2: Yes, that's right. Another one of Richler's book was made into. Yes. It. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that was a um, uh, Barney's version is a great book, and that that I haven't. I'm I'm looking forward to seeing that movie. I I haven't seen that. Uh, um, uh, seen it yet? Uh,
0: it, I haven't read it, but I, I thought Giamatti was excellent in it, and I really, really enjoyed it. In fact, it looked like something Richard Dreyfus or Dustin Hoffman would have starred in forty years ago.
2: Well, that's great to hear. It's a great, it's a great book, actually. It's uh, if you if you uh, feel like uh, a read. I'm glad to hear the film's good, but uh, the book bu- the book was great too.
0: Cool. I'll, I'll be on the lookout right for it. Now you you were going to say something.
2: Oh, I was just thinking of the other films another one that I the, another one that was on my list and these were not films that I put on the list uh, because they were necessarily great movies but because they spoke to me in a important way at a different you know different parts of my life mm-hmm. another one was a, a little documentary we're talking about documentaries uh, made in the 60s out of California called Skater Dater cool. uh, which is a 12 minute movie with no uh no dialogue, which actually I learned later as I went as I was kind of researching the thing to tell my boys about it. I either won or was uh, nominated for an Oscar as the documentary of the year, and it was it was a piece about little boys uh, learning how to uh, skateboarding in, in in somewhere in California, and then one of them seeing a girl on a bicycle and being diverted to her as he grew, you know, his, as his as his uh, loyalty to the group of skateboarders was uh, challenged by the pretty blonde thing on the bicycle. It was a, lo- a lovely little movie, and I just watched it the other day. It's very fun. It's a fun exercise to go through, to to, to try and go through the movies of your life and, and, and choose ten which are the movies of your life that, that, that spoke to you in, in some way. And then to find them, it's hard to find these films.
0: Yeah, that's, that's the other thing I mean, with the, the uh website. Yeah, a lot of these films are not on DVD. I think part of it is maybe who owns the rights to what and how do you convert them. But yeah, there, there's still a, a, a number of films, no matter where they're made, that, that haven't made it to DVD or Blu-ray or online yet. So it's, there is still a, a bit of a hunting feel, I guess, kind of like going into a record store and looking for an old album that's out of print.
2: Which makes it all the more fun. Huh. I
0: agree. Yeah, so the, the, the search keeps going, I guess. Uh,
2: well, for me, and, and that's uh, – I, I, yeah, because I've told them I'll, I'll get them all the movies, and I, I think I've, I've, um, I've got four or five so far, and uh, I'm looking for having, – having that as a little uh, project in, 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 on the uh, back burner is kind of fun. Well,
0: in baseball, you're doing
2: great. Well, you're right.
0: <laughs> hey, just curious, what do you think? What are some of the movies Dave and Morley would probably watch?
2: Well, Dave would probably be watching Meatballs. <laughs> 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 Proudly, with with a, with a Canadian beer in his hand. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds um, like my
0: college days.
2: <laughs> what would Morley be watching?
0: I mean, was it, do we do standard romantic comedies, or you know, they have to fight over what they're gonna go see, what they're gonna watch? Give and take as a lot of spouses
2: do. You see, now you've 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 put a, You've given me some food for thought here. I I can't answer it, but I think I'm going to try. Excellent. Yeah, that's a good one. I I think. Yeah, I think they would like romantic comedies. I think they, uh, you know, Sleepless in Seattle and uh, um, what are some of those Hugh Grant movies? The, right, uh, Four uh, Weddings and Funeral, Love
0: Actually. Yeah, Love Actually was just on on cable last night. I think it's on a twenty four hour loop. It's it's law apparently. <laughs> <laughs> well, Stuart, I really really appreciate uh, your time, and and I, I guess you, you always have you always try to get Canadian musicians on on your show. I'm waiting for you to put the band Anvil on your show someday.
2: OK, I think don't hold your- <laughs> No offense to the band Anvil. I don't even know them, but I, 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 I fear that just the name sounds Can- like it uh, won't be. A, they won't. God love them. Won't be, won't be on our show.
0: Canadian metal bands that are in their 50s. No, well, it was worth a shot.
2: But they, well, maybe we could do them unplugged.
0: Hey, there you go. I mean, it's a it's a really fine, fine documentary. It's, it's called Anvil, the story uh- of Anvil.
2: Yeah, I think I've I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it. Yeah,
0: it's some people have said if if Spinal Tap were real. But uh but it's a it's a sweet story cuz you have these two especially the two original members who have been slugging it out in the music world for over 30 years and and they just they they won't give up. It's very inspiring. And but yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of loud music and silliness along the way.
2: Well, I'll, I'll add it to my my list.
1: <laughs> Silent Green is people. Zardoz. As
0: spoken. We dipped into the archives with my interviews with Stuart McLean and F. Murray Abraham. Thank you for listening. Go see a good movie. You deserve it. We'll see what happens next week. You're listening to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the point and WFYI.org. Good afternoon, Fort Myers. Good afternoon, California. Good afternoon, Michigan. <laughs>
1: let her watch manos. <laughs> Is she scarred for life?
0: Let's put it this way what kind
1: when of I parent are you?
0: <laughs> when I wake her up, I vocalize the theme to wake her up to get oh, her ready to school. Oh
2: you're a terrible father. <laughs> we'll do it live. Okay. We'll, no. we'll do it live!